basically is that um, I've been really, really busy um, in, in the last... But Rod doesn't care. He's telling me again. But, but <laughs> been really, really busy. But I do have something on my heart that uh, I, 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 I want to share this morning. I want to kind of continue on a little bit from where we were last week. Last week we lo- talked about... Anyone remember what P-O-N-R stands for? You can't say nothing. You've ruined one message. Don't do it again, please. Don't steal my thunder again, hey? Double, double negative, I can't say... Look, who's speaking here? Who's got the microphone, people? <laughs> point of no return. Last week we looked at this point of no uh, return, and it's that point in life where we close all the back doors. There's no plan B. I've decided to follow Jesus. I love that phrase because it puts the emphasis on me. I've decided. And it is a decision. It's not a feeling or an emotion. Um, it's a decision, and life is full of decisions. Sometimes I think we have this impression we come to Jesus and everything is fixed. There's this, this, this situation we find ourselves in where God makes us free. I'm no longer a slave, Galatians says. I'm no longer a slave. I'm now free. It's for freedom that Christ came and died to give us freedom and liberty. Everyone amen that? Everyone agree with that? He died that we could be made free, that we could be set free. But then I see all the way throughout the letters of this, this grouping of books called the New Testament, this sense whereby I have freedom, but now I'm encouraged to actually walk in that freedom. Just because I have freedom doesn't mean that I'm necessarily living free. There's an element in which God says, I've done this for you. Now you need to walk in that which I've done for you. Because I have, it's, it's like I heard a story recently about a, a, a prisoner here in Australia, a lady who had served eight years for armed robbery. She got out of prison and when she walked out the prison gate, she got into a taxi, drove straight to a shop, robbed the store, then went and sat in the gutter out the front waiting for the police to come to take her back. So she was technically free. She had been released from prison. She was free. But sometimes, I guess, for whatever reason, freedom scares us. And it's better the devil you know than the devil you don't, for lack of a better terminology. Some people get comfortable in their lack of freedom. And when Christ comes into our world and he opens the door to freedom, and he says, now I've made you free, there's then a responsibility for us to walk out the doors of the prison, but then go and walk in freedom, walk in that which is right, God has set the scene for us. He's opened the prison doors, but there's an element of responsibility we still have to take to walk in that which he has done for us. Does that make sense? Yep. I hope that makes sense. Because I want to talk about one little part of that today, and it ties into this point of no return idea because I'm a big believer that we live in a world where Christianity, our the ability to follow Jesus, there's this... this there's, I, I believe in grey patches in life. I believe in grey. Who believes in grey? Grey is where grace dwells. And faith is not black and white. Okay? You can do the right thing with the wrong motivation. And it can make it wrong. Because God's looking at this. You can do the wrong thing, but with the right motivation, and it can make it right almost. There's this grey element of grace in life. But when it comes to following Jesus or not following Jesus, it's not a lot of grey in there. You're either with him and you've made the decision to follow him, or you're not really following him. Um, 
partially following and tiptoeing and trying, and that's completely fine, and Jesus is okay with that. Nicodemus came at night to talk to Jesus. He didn't rebuke him. He didn't say there's anything wrong with what you're doing because that was where Nicodemus was on on his journey. But there's a point of decision where we come to a place and we say, no, 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 I have decided to follow Jesus. And there is no turning back. I'm not going back. I've made two decisions. One, I'm going forward with Jesus. And two, I'm not going back to what I once used to have in life and and the person I used to be and so on. The Bible says that we're a new creation. Yet at the same time, Paul, in many of his letters, says we need to choose to put on the new creation. We need to choose to walk in the new creation. We can continue to think, act, and live the same way we used to. But now, once upon a time, we had an excuse, I guess, for that because we had this thing called the sin nature in control. We had an excuse for that. When Jesus sets us free, he opens the doors. He says, you've now got no excuse to sit in the cell. You can now go free. That which was stopping you from doing the right thing has been removed. But you still have to make the choices to do the right things. you still got to choose to walk forward. I've removed that which can find you and took away your option and your ability to do the right thing. I've removed that. Now you actually have the capacity to do the right thing. And part of this discipleship journey is learning to walk in that responsibility. Go with me to to 2 Timothy 1.7 real quick. I want to touch on one thing that I think holds us back. And we sing about this. There's a song we sing, uh, I'm no longer a slave to fear. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I believe one of the biggest reasons why people hold back from going across that point of no return is fear. We're afraid of what will that mean. I don't want to get into it today, but I believe there are three big fears, overriding fears that that, that come under that umbrella. One is the fear of losing our reputation. What would it mean if we really gave ourselves over to Jesus? What happens to my reputation? I build a reputation in heaven, but what happens to my reputation out there? What will people think if I did decide to draw that line in the sand and go, I'm going to follow after Jesus with everything that I've got from now until the end, regardless of where that takes me. No turning back because I've decided. I wonder what would happen to my reputation. Second one is, first one's reputation, fear of losing our reputation. Our second one's the fear of persecution. And that's becoming more and more evident in our country. We don't get persecuted like they do in India right now. As we speak, they're burning down churches. They're beating up pastors and all this stuff. We don't have to deal with that here yet necessarily. But, but we all know that there's a, a, a persecution that's starting to happen now. We see it in the media. People are losing their jobs. People are being, uh, uh, becoming social outcasts because they take a stand for Jesus and for his teachings and his values and those things that he thinks are important. We're already seeing that. There's the fear of losing our reputation. There's a, 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 a fear of, of, um, of persecution. And what will people uh, say to us and how will they treat us? And what will life look like? Um, there's another fear, and it's just run out of my head right now because I don't have any notes, so I'm just sort of trying to go with what's inside of here this morning because, as I said, I was too busy to even get a message ready, right? So I'm just flowing out of my spirit here. Fear of, of a loss of reputation. Then there's the, 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 um, uh, the fear of persecution. And there are other things that come under it, but the overarching umbrella is this thing called fear. And at 2 Timothy 1.7, Paul writes something to a young guy called Timothy. And Timothy's only a young fella. And Timothy has been given the responsibility to lead a church, basically, to pastor some people and to try to take them into the things of God. 
And here's what Paul says to Timothy. Uh, we can assume based on what Paul's saying that Timothy is not operating in a certain aspect of his life, especially in his call in God. There's a certain area of his, his life that uh, is, is, is there to build the kingdom, and he's not flowing freely in this for the reason of fear. And Timothy, uh, Paul says this, he says, Therefore I remind you, stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. He goes on into verse 7. He says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of sound mind. So, so God has not given any of us here a spirit of fear. It doesn't mean that fear is not trying to grip you in life. It doesn't mean that fear doesn't try to hold you back. But what we know clearly is this. God is not the one that gives you a spirit of fear. Fear this fear that he's talking about that stops you moving forward in God. And that's what's happening here to Timothy. Timothy, there's a gift on your life. There's a call on your life. I want to say this to the church in 2019. We all have a call on our life. Now, we want to nitpick and break down what is that individual call. Well, I want to say this. There's one overriding call for every one of us. Go into all the world. Preach the gospel. Go into all the world and tell the world that the story of Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is true. Go and tell them that God is for them, not against them. That Jesus didn't come to condemn us, but he came to give us life. Every one of us in this room, we have that. So while we're trying to work out all the other nitpicky bits, and we do it, and, and, and you know, within that framework, I, and I believe with all my heart, I've been called to pastor a church, to be in this place. I'm not here because I want to be. Uh, trust me, you don't put yourself in the firing line um, like this uh, because it's not always pleasant. But I do enjoy what I do because I know that God's put a gift on my life. I never asked for it. It was thrust upon me. Uh, I found my way to it. It's still um, being built and I'm still finding my way through it. But there's a gift on my life, so I'm here. But there's an overriding gift that was on my life, a call upon my life before this ever started to manifest itself. And that was again, Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples. That's blanket for all of us. It's not for a special group of people. We're called to go into all the world. But here we're talking about that little bit of, of, of pastoring or whatever it is that he's meant to do. There's a gift on his life and he's not operating in it because of fear of man. And so Paul writes to him and he says, you've got a gift and the thing that's stopping you right now is fear. And he says, I want you to understand something about fear. God didn't give it to you. God didn't place this fear upon you. Now here's what I want to say. God didn't put the fear on you. And when we get in situations like this with fear, here's what we do. Most of the time we pray, Lord, take away fear. Paul didn't say to Timothy, there's this spirit of fear that's blocking you from doing what you're called to do. Pray that God would take away the fear. He says, Timothy, stir yourself up and do something in spite of the fear. If we're sitting back waiting for fear to be absent from our lives, that won't happen this side of eternity. Fear coexists with faith. It has from the beginning of time and it will continue to exist until Jesus comes back. But the thing is, Paul's saying to Timothy, you still have a choice to do something. You don't 
pray away the fear. And I'm not saying if you're in fearful situations, don't pray. The God of all comfort can comfort your heart. God can do all that stuff. But what I'm saying is this. If you're sitting back waiting for God to remove fear before you do anything, you'll do nothing. You'll do nothing. Paul says to Timothy, you have something on your life. You need to stir it up. Stir it up and do that something in spite of the fear. Don't let fear be the thing that stops you from moving forward. I read a quote once and it was this, Courage is not the absence of fear, but the ability to press on through it. Courage is not the absence of fear, but it's the ability for us to press on through fear. I think we should be the most courageous people on planet Earth. Why fear man who might beat and bruise and Jesus said, fear God. Fear God who's got the capacity to make decisions after you leave this earth. Don't worry about men who feel like they've got power and authority this side. Don't worry about that. It's temporal. It's temporal. But if we're sitting back waiting for fear to disappear, we'll do nothing. And I wonder how many people in this room, you've had ideas or dreams or you want to pray for that sick person or you want to share with that person about the love of God or, or, or maybe, maybe it's starting a, a, a business. Or, you know, I had a guy here come up to me once uh, in the early days of our church and I had a coffee with him and he said, Alan, it's in my heart, I want to start a church. Here's what he said to me, I want to start a church, he's in our church. My advice to him was, you know what, here's, here's what I'm going to say to you. If it's in your heart to do this and it's bubbling around, I'm going to bless you and encourage you, go and do it. Don't get to 80 years of age and be looking back and going, gee, I wonder whether I wish I could have, I thought I might have, maybe I should have. Hey, if it's there, have a go. What's the worst case scenario? It falls on its face and you come back and we'll love you anyway. Don't let fear stop you from stepping out and doing what you feel like you're called to do. Proverbs 29, verse 25. It says that the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. It's comparing two things. One is the fear of man and the trust of Lord uh, and trusting God. It's like a comparison. Here's one end of the magnet, here's the other. Which end of the magnet do we want to choose to live on? Do we want to live under the fear of man or do we want to live under the trust of the Lord? My next step that I take in life, is it going to be determined and dictated to by my fear of man or is it going to be determined and dictated to by my trust in God? Because the fear will be there. It's not going to be completely taken away. Every time we step into the unknown, do you want to know something? I was packing. When I was telling you last week about the shark, on my back and I hit that halfway mark, that point of no return. I was frightful. I was scared. I was fearful. I was scared of a shark more so than anything else. Him waking up and being really annoyed because I gave him a headache. And I don't think if I offered him Panadol, it would have settled him down. He was going to go for me. But when we make the decision to go after Jesus and to step into a life of faith, we are going to be constantly confronted with fear. We're going to be constantly confronted with opportunities to not take another step forward. It's like the devil stands in front of you every step of the way and says, okay, you've gone that far, but that's enough. Well, I've forgiven this person. Okay, I couldn't stop. You got through me and you forgave that person, but you're not forgiving another person. You stay right where you are. And fear comes upon us. And he's trying to limit our progress forward. He's trying to limit our movement forward because the more forward we go, the more we we break the shackles of fear, we acknowledge that fear may be there, but fear is not my master. Faith is my master. Jesus is my master. I'm not going to live a life controlled by fear. 
Many of us are bound by fear. Sometimes we get so comfortable living in fear, we're like that lady that reoffends to go back to prison because it's safer living under fear and not doing anything than it is to step outside into the new world with the doors open and do something. But we're not called to live in fear. We're called to walk by faith and do great things. Those that know their God will do great exploits. Church at the moment, anyone, maybe this is just how I think, but, but, but I, I constantly look back to the book of Acts and I, and I understand God saying, uh, I want to do that stuff, that's normal. What we see in the first 30 years in Acts, sometimes I think we think it's just some, the, the, the theological world is it was a dispensation in time. God was doing that for then, but we don't need that anymore. Well, people were as lost back then as they are now. There's no difference in the lostness. I don't think the world is different, really, than what it was back then. Cultures might have been different. They might have spoke different languages, had different values in society. But that's happening right now. Go to another country, they'll speak a different language, have different value systems, different gods. It's no different. The world is not that different. Lost people are not any more lost than they were. Found people are not any more found than they were back then. I was listening to a, 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 a guy was talking about American society at the moment. And he was talking about American society during the Second World War in comparison to what society is like in general with, with all the wars that have gone on since Iraq and Afghanistan and so on. And he made this observation. He said in the Second World War... Everybody in society played a role. He said, if you weren't on the front lines, driving a tank or firing guns or whatever, if you weren't on the front line, you were back at home. You were making blankets. You were packing boxes. You were packing ammunition and bullets. But he said, just about everybody in society had a role they were playing. You were involved in the communications. Everybody in society, they took it upon themselves, the whole nation, that the nation is at war, not just the soldiers that go over there. We're all living with an awareness that we're part of the army and we're part of the battle and we're doing our bit where we are. He said, fast forward to American society today. He said, we watch it on TV, what's going on in Afghanistan. We watch on TV what's happening uh, over in Iraq, wherever the troops are now. He said, we sit at home now, we watch. And then when the story's over, we change the channel and we watch Friends and have a laugh at how stupid Chandler is. That sense in which we're all in this together has kind of evaporated now. And you're over there and you're fighting, so you do your, your battle and we'll keep up to speed with what's happening, but we've got our life back here that's going on. And that sense of we're all in this battle together has kind of been lost, he was saying. And it made me think about church. I wonder, I go back and I read the book of Acts and I do see uh, an entire movement of people engaged in the battle. And you can go back and read it. I don't want to keep digging through it. There's enough evidence in there that the, 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 the catalogue stands on its own. Everybody's involved in the battle. No matter where they were, what they were doing, they're all involved in the battle. I wonder whether we've still got that spirit about us. Are we all still realising we're all engaged in this battle together? Or is it just for the evangelist or the pastor or the prophet? Or Are we realising that every single one of us have a role to play in this thing? Just a side thought. I don't know. But I know this, that fear is probably the number one reason why we don't tell our friends about Jesus. Fear is the number one reason why most people won't pray for a sick person. We'll say, oh, but what if it doesn't happen? That's not really the reason. Because you don't know if it's going to happen or not. You haven't prayed yet. But, but we're not going to take the chance. Why? Because we're afraid of what people will think, losing our reputation, 
afraid of persecution. We've got fear of man. Proverbs 29, 25 says the fear of man is like a snare. You know the problem with a snare? You can live with one, but you weren't created to. Many, many years ago, I went on a survival camp. I joined the Army Cadets when I was at Mount High, and I only joined Army Cadets on the, on the, on the Thursday afternoon because on Friday they were jumping in a bus, going 30 k's out of town, being dumped in the middle of the bush by themselves with no teachers for two and a half days. So when I heard that, I ran down, I signed up on a Thursday night, and Dad gave me a shovel and a couple of little things, and Friday morning I was on the bus. We got home Sunday afternoon, I resigned on Monday. I just wanted the time. But one of the things we had to do, we took no food. We were not allowed to take any food with us, so we had to catch our own food. So we made a little snare, a little thing around a rabbit hole, and then, you know, the idea was when the rabbit comes running through, he gets his head in it, and then as he hops away, it tightens up. So then you come back, you don't have a dead rabbit. The rabbit's alive, but he's attached to the snare. He's got a certain amount of movement. There's a circumference of space in which he can live and hop around and move, but he can't go beyond that. That's what he's saying. The fear of man is like a snare. It's that thing that grabs a hold of us that allows you to go so far, then you stop. You can't go any further. And the frightening thing about the fear of man is we can live with it, but we weren't meant to. There's a certain amount of freedom with it, but it's not ultimate freedom. It's not the freedom that Jesus came to give us. We can see it in operation in the church. How many of you during worship at some point you get caught up in the moment. You're loving God and you just want to express yourself. And maybe you want to raise your hands, but I'm not a hand raiser. I'm not that person that raises my hand. So I go, and then it's like frozen, like something's locked my arms in and I can't do it. And I bring my arms back down. But I want to. What is that? I'm too worried about what other people are going to think. I want to, I want to jump a little bit maybe and just give a bit of joy to God, but my feet are stapled to the ground. I went through this. I went to the Solomon Islands. Many used to go to in and out of the islands many years, take teams in and out of the Solomon Islands. And, and I took a team in one year, and their worship's amazing. They've got bongo drums, and, and their voices are so good it made me sick. You know, they're all harmonic and harmonious and all this stuff. Brilliant. And so anyway, but during worship, it was so joyful that I found myself over there doing something I would never do here in Australia. And it was this. My arms are in the air and I'm, joy to Jesus, joy to the Lord. And, I'm, and, and you know what? I'll tell you something. There was something about it that within me made me feel so much, not closer, but alive. I felt so much more available to Jesus when I busted out of that. And I think that's part of the reason why God wants us out of the fear of man. Because here's the thing. God wants to do things beyond me. God wants to do things so that he gets glory, not I get glory. He wants me to do things that are beyond myself so that when they get done, I also fall on my face and go, well, there's no way I could do that, Lord. That had to be you. And the people around will go, he's just not that good. There's got to be a God. And I'm jumping around there doing all the... And I felt so available. That's the word I'm looking for. I felt so available. I felt like, God, you could say to me right now, run into the middle of the street and start screaming, Jesus is Lord, doing cartwheels, and I would do it, and I wouldn't care. That's what I felt like. And by the end of the outreach, man, I'm just bopping off. I actually did. I went into Honiara in the Solomon Islands, and I'm sitting down in the main square talking to this island boy, and I notice this crowd in the, in the, on the, around the fringes. They're sort of you know, sitting there and having a smoke and talking and that, and they're looking across at me. So what I did was I just stood up on the thing in the middle of it, and I just started preaching. I had hundreds of people around me, and I'm preaching about Jesus, and I'm telling them about the love of God. And you know what? I, I just felt so like God wanted that to happen in that moment, and I was so available. I didn't even flinch, and it all started because in a worship 
worship service, I decided, well, God, I'm going to lift my hands and jump. And I busted that fear off my life. But here's, here's the disclaimer. I came back to Australia. Uh, hey, please, understand this. It wasn't that black and white. I was the associate pastor of a very, very large church. Thank you. We've got 200, 250 people there. I'm in the front row. You don't want to see me carrying on like a pork chop. People are looking at me. I'm trying to show them this is how you worship. Well, this, you see? And it hit me, the same thing, this sense of joy in God. And I wanted to jump, and here's what I found myself doing. I started like this, and I'm standing still, and I thought, no, I'm going to... And, and I started going like this, and then I realized what's happening. My feet, they will not come off the ground. No matter what I did, I'm trying to get them off the ground, but they're like they're stapled to the floor, and they wouldn't move. And I'm doing this, and then before you know it, I'm back to being old Alan, who just lost that sense of freedom again. But I never forgot... That moment in time, because I felt so available to God when I busted out and thought, I don't care. It happened in worship, but it overflowed into other areas of my world. And I think that's what the fear of man is about. It's a snare. You have a certain amount of freedom, but not the full freedom that God intended for us. And certainly not the full freedom that at times you find your spirit crying out for. Anyone ever have those moments? Inside you're crying out. But it's like there's a cap. And it's not just in worship. It can be when you're walking down the street and you, wanna, you see a need or you see somebody, a heart breaks and you want to bring Jesus to that person, but you just, what if they reject me? What if they don't like it? What if, what if, what if? And we hold it back in. Judges chapter 7 and verse 3. I want to show you something. We all know the story of Gideon and the army. Everyone know the story of Gideon? He's got, I think it's 32,000 people. That's a big army. Now, the idea of war is this. Have more than they do. I mean, that's a no-brainer, right? But not to a God who says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways. Isn't it funny? I often, I've been thinking about this this week. God, if I serve a God who thinks exactly like I think, am I really serving the God of the Bible? If God does everything the way that I would do it, have I kind of got God in a bit of a box? Am I really understanding the bigness of God? Because we can do that. We can, we can begin to follow a God who thinks my thoughts and, know, and does my ways all the time, yet he says, my thoughts are different, my ways are different. Am I open to the different? Or has it got to be me and my way and what I'm comfortable with and what feels safe? So he's got this massive army, 32,000 people I think it is, and here's what happens. God comes and says, I'm not going to send you into battle because you'll win. It's a, it's a lay down mazare, you're going to win. When you do, Israel are going to get puffed up and you'll claim glory for yourself and you go, look at us, how great are we? So God says, I'm going to do something that defies the way that you would do things. I'm going to strip it right back so that you get to a point where you know you cannot win. Then I'm going to win and I'll get the glory. God's ways are definitely not my ways, <laughs> you know. So here's what he does. This is the first thing that he does. It's interesting. He says, now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the people. This is what God says. Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. Can you imagine that moment? I want you to be there. There's 32,000 people. We can win this. And then Joshua says, here's what God's saying. If anyone's timid and afraid, you can leave. Now I want you to, to have a look at what God is saying. 
Whoever's fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once. Do you think that everybody that was timid and afraid was shaking their knees? And, I mean, we're pretty good in a, in, a, in, a, in a big crowd like that. You can hide your emotions pretty well. I'm running through this story and I'm going, well, hang on, God. It's not like God came down and said, you're fearful and timid. You need to go. You need to go. You need to go. You need to go. No, no, no. He said, if you're fearful and timid, depart at once. In other words, it's your choice. It's your choice what you do with the fear. It's up to you. I'm going to give you two options. You can bow to the fear and leave. No judgment. Go for it. Or you can stay. But it's your choice. I've always read this story and thought that God kicked all the frayed ones away as if having fear was bad. It's just this week I was reading through it and I realised, hang on a second, God, you never said that being afraid was bad and evil and wicked and that you booted them out of your army because they were afraid. You gave them the choice. You just acknowledged the fact that I bet you there's a lot of people here afraid. And if you're afraid and you want to go, that's okay. But it's your choice. What do you want to do with the fear? Do you want to bow to the fear or do you want to walk through it? Your choice. What would you like to do? I had a, anyone that knows me knows that I have a five years too strong a word. Absolutely petrified of snakes. That's probably a better way to put it. I don't like snakes. And I came into my shed a couple of weeks ago down here and it was very, very hot and I've walked into the shed. I opened up the door to go in to get something in this, this shed in our backyard and I've walked this way and out of the corner of my eye I saw something and I just knew enough within myself to know that whatever that thing is shouldn't be there. There should be nothing there but there's now something there. I don't know what that something is but it's there. There should be nothing there. And when this happened I thought, if I turn and look at what the thing is that should be nothing, if that nothing is something, then what is that something? If I look, I know what the something is. The something's not nothing, it's now something, and I can name the something. Now I've got to acknowledge the presence of the something. I don't want to acknowledge the presence of the something, so I'll pretend there's nothing and keep walking. So I kept on walking, and I grabbed my thing, and I turned around, and then I thought, I can't completely ignore the presence of the something. I've got to know what it is. So I did the stupidest thing. I just had a, I thought, you know, ever have those moments you think, if I look really quickly, I won't see it. It's hard to miss a 10-foot python. Hard to miss. But I tried it anyway. I went, I've got nothing there. Ah, I've seen it. It's there. I've got to acknowledge its presence now. And here it is curled up and it's looking at me. Like this. And everything within me wanted to run. I just wanted to take off because I don't like snakes. There's a reason why the devil is pictured as a snake in the Garden of Eden. He's still a snake to me and I didn't want anything to do with it. And he's looking at me. And my instinct said, Run. Flee from it, go away. But something inside of me said, if you run from this, Alan, you'll continue to run for the rest of your life. Here's your moment. What are you going to do? So I started to go for the door and I stopped. And I came back and I made sure there was a, a nice bit of distance between me and Mr. Slithers. And I sat there and I just looked at him and I just said, right, I'm going to plant my feet and I'm just going to stare at him. And so I did. I just stared at Mr. Slithers. And Slithers is staring at me and I'm staring at Slithers and I'm thinking, I'm not going to back down. You're going to back down first, buddy. You're going to turn around and leave my shed because this is my shed. This ain't your shed, it's my shed, you know. And I'm standing there staring at Mr. Slithers. He's staring back at me and he's going nowhere. But after about five minutes of the stare off, I noticed the fear began to sort of dissipate. The fear didn't disappear until I stood there, five minutes staring at him. All of a sudden, I started to overcome that feeling of fear. 
cut a long story short, I rolled up my roller door and I, I got a, a golf club and I tried to gently nudge him out the roller door, but he didn't want to go there, he wanted to go back into my stuff. So I started getting a little more annoyed, nudging him a bit more aggressively, and in the end he, he crawled along and he went up into the framework of the, of the uh, shed, it's a big U, U frame like that, he went up under here, turned his head around and came back down, so his head's sitting here, and then he fed his body all the way up. And then he flexed and I could not budge him. I mean, I'm, I'm right there. I got so bold that I'm this far away from him, jamming a golf club into his back, trying to wedge him out. He's, he's right there. Like, I got so close to him, we could have been best buddies. And I'm trying to get him out. Eventually, he came out, and, and he was very annoyed by this stage. He starts coming at me. So I got the golf club, and in one beautiful swing, I just went like this, like that. And I hooked his head, and I flicked him out the roller door, and he landed on the grass, and he kept on going. And he's still sitting in the tree at the back of my shed as we speak. But I'm so glad that I overcame the fear. I had a choice. What was I going to do in that moment with the fear? Do I confront this fear? Do I push on through it? Was I courageous? I think I was courageous, not because there was no fear, but because I pushed on through the fear and I showed a little bit of courage. And I grew as a person. I walk in that shed now, and I must be honest with you, I still do these ones. Every time, I mean, I walk in, I'm looking everywhere. I haven't seen him. He hasn't been back in there for a few weeks' time. Fear of man is like a snare. You can live with a snare, but you weren't created to live with a snare. I'll give you the end game of fear, and we'll finish up. The end game of fear is this. Fear's ultimate goal is to stop you doing something that'll benefit others. That's the end game. I think when we think about fear, we think about things that we can do that will benefit us. Start that business. Plant that, you know that new company, um, buy that house. Buy, we think about things that will benefit us, but I think the ultimate end game of fear is to stop you doing anything that will benefit somebody else. Like telling them that there's a loving creator that cares for them. Like praying for them, giving God an opportunity to come on into a space and do something that he wants to do. Like forgiving somebody, releasing them from whatever it is that's gone on in the past. Loving somebody unconditionally. In the natural, they don't, you don't feel like they deserve it, but how will they interpret that? What will that look like? His ultimate goal is to stop us doing something that will benefit other people. You know, I was, had a baptism two weeks ago. I finished with this. We were at the baptisms. And what some of you don't know is I hung around afterwards for a little bit. Because I, I was there before you, actually, and I was fishing, flicking lures around. Anyway, I, I, just to show how good I was at, at casting, I said to Mick, I said, see that rope over there? There's just one rope hanging. I said, watch this. I'll go, I bet you I can hit the rope. And I flicked the lure and bang, smacked right on the rope, and the lure got stuck in the rope. Not bad. It's, okay, but I'm telling the story, Mick. <laughs> if I was to say to them that I missed all that open water and happened to hit the rope, it doesn't sound as good. So bottom line, I've, I've casted. Mick still doesn't believe me, but I was aiming for the rope. I, over there, open water, I went whack, and there it was, and it stuck in the rope. And I went to try to wind it off, and my, my line snapped, and the, the, the lure is just hanging there in the rope, you know, just sticking there. And I thought, oh, well, <laughs> sucks to be the kid that swings on that rope. I didn't really. I thought, oh, now I'm going to have to do something that's really uncomfortable, something I don't want to do, 
And to be brutally honest with you, I'm a wuss when it comes to cold water. I am a wuss. Hands up. I am an absolute wuss with cold water. I did not want to get in. You think when we did the baptisms, the reason I got the people to go in first, you think it was because that's like the spiritual thing. Nothing to do with it. I just wanted to see their reactions and goosebumps on the back of their legs. So I knew what to expect when I got in there. Uh, that way, if they go in first too, they're in the deeper part of the water. So, But anyway, I, I decided I've got to get in the water. I jumped in the water. I swam across. And when I first got in there, the head starts spinning and... <gasps> can't breathe it's so cold in that water and I get across and I it was like um crocodile Dundee had the knife in my mouth I'm swimming across with a knife in my mouth pulling myself up with one arm while I cut the rope someone should have filmed that that would have been worth filming cut the thing down exactly that's how you remember it that's right and I cut that thing down and I got rid of it and swam back and got my lure now sitting in in my box I didn't really want to do that, to be brutally honest with you. But I knew that if I had to make myself a little bit uncomfortable for the sake of somebody else. See, I know what it's like to have a hook through your hand. I took a young YWAM kid fishing at a dam out the back of Wallingbar many, many years ago. We planned this all week. He loved fishing. He'd been in this country for about oh, four months, whatever, hadn't fished. I took him out to this little dam out the back of Wallingbar. We get in there. Sun's just coming up. It's five in the morning. He's so pumped and excited. He's like a little kid in a candy shop. We paddle out in this little canoe, get to the middle. He casts out first cast. He, bite, he catches this beautiful bass. He winds it in, brings the bass in, flicks it over to me because it's a little dugout about that wide, so he couldn't hold it himself. So I said, swing it over to me, and I'll take it out. So he swings it over to me, and I grab the fish with one hand. I grab the lure with the other. I start to pull it out. The fish flicks its tail. He panics and reefs back on the rod. <laughs> Half of the lure, bottom hook's in my thumb. The top ones are in my finger, and I'm stuck like that. And this poor kid, he just went white. And me being the really nice guy I am, I'm going, it's okay, it doesn't even hurt. In fact, I do this to myself sometimes just for fun, you know. All fishermen do in this country, <laughs> keep fishing. So for the next two hours, three hours, we kept fishing. And I'm sitting there with this thing, just pretending that it's not hurting. And, of course, eventually I get to the doctors and those really compassionate, you know, really compassionate um, nurses at the emergency ward that just take their time with you. She just grabbed it and went, rip. Rips the thing out. But I had to go across. I wanted to get that lure off because I know what it feels like to get a lure stuck through your hand. It was very uncomfortable to do. And I was actually not wanting to do it. But I know what it's like to have a lure in my hand. So I put myself in an uncomfortable situation to try to help somebody else not experience what it's like to get a lure in their hand. My, 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 my prayer for us is that we would be people who when God looks down and goes you know I've got some things I want to do around here but it's, it might get a little uncomfortable but I need somebody to share with this person I need somebody to pray with this person, I need somebody to give to this person, I need, uh, I, I need somebody to, to, to listen to this person. I need somebody to step into this space. It's going to be uncomfortable and, and, and you're going to be afraid, but I just need people who will avail themselves to me, who I can call upon to do those kinds of jobs. Everybody wants me to come and say you can preach on Sunday, give your microphone, stand in front of a church. We all want that. Well, not everybody, but... You know, these are the easy things. This is easy for me. Going out there, where the rubber meets the road of my faith, to people that don't agree with me and 
think the way I think and taking Jesus out there, that's the real stuff. That's the real stuff. That's the church that Jesus gave birth to. That's the movement that he started, going to all the world, get involved in the lives of people. Don't let fear stop you. Don't let your own personal comfort be your driving value and your driving ethic. Follow me. Come with me. And let's do something incredible and amazing. Father, thank you for this morning, Lord. I pray again, Lord, that you would just take these words that are dribbling out of my mouth. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would, uh, Father, speak to different people here, Lord. Interpret what I've said into a language that each of us here understand. And Father, I pray, would you please challenge us, continue to challenge us, God. We don't want to be a, a movement that just have a great time together with no concern or reflection about a generation of people that right now have a knowledge of who you are and they're getting all their stuff from a current affair or they're getting all their information from Google or they're getting their information from people that have had bad experiences who seem to be so much more open to talk about that than what many of us are to talk about the good. Lord, stir us up, challenge us, change us, Father, we ask in Jesus' name. God, I pray you would bless our time together now as we have lunch together. Father, bless the food to our bodies. Give us a great time of fellowship. Lord, I pray that we'd be open, Lord, as we speak to one another and, and share with one another that, uh, Lord, you'd, you'd be, uh, Lord, using us, God, speaking truth, God, to one another. Father, we might call it conversation, but, Lord, would you prophetically speak and challenge and encourage and, Lord, continue to do what you're doing in our lives through each and every one of us this afternoon, Father. And I pray in the next seven days, give every one of us a chance to tell somebody about the goodness of God, someone that doesn't up to this point understand it yet in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's have uh, some lunch. Can I just uh, tell you too, um, just at the back there where that black plastic is, I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll um, reveal a bit more next week, but um, uh, we're putting a couple of showers in there this afternoon, a his and hers shower. So we're going to be... T- uh, see, no one's even laughing. You think I'm so serious, don't you? You think I'm serious. It's not a shower. That's where our door's going. Yeah? That's where the door's going. Do you want to roll the real quickly roll that clip of uh, Mick? Look at this. It's okay, Luke's underneath it. He's going to catch it. Oh, he missed that one. He did all that with a teaspoon. Grouched it out. Awesome. Now, can, now before, we, before we break for lunch, can you just show us the outfit?